All right. Hey, everybody. I'd like to welcome everyone who is following along with this edition of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame's Hall Call interview series on a, on a Friday, which is always a we're always in good moods on a Friday. So hopefully everybody is in a good mood and hopefully you're staying safe, staying healthy as we continue to navigate the pandemic. I am Will Driscoll, the executive director of the Hall of Fame, and I'm happy to bring this to you. Uh, it's been a great content platform for us during this time. So if there's a silver lining in anything, it's the fact that we've been able to do interviews like this. But uh, March 11th is, is kind of a date that I don't want to say it's going to live in infamy, but I think it's a date that a lot of us will remember because that is pretty much the day that everything stopped. The world, college sports in particular, uh, things things ended that day. And the next day, we didn't know what was going to happen. And here we are nine months later, and we're still kind of in the same situation. But winter sports didn't crown champions in college, and many spring seasons were over before they even got started. So fast forward now to where we are today. Uh, many D1 schools have started in some form or fashion. We've seen schools like Old Dominion not do football, but they are doing winter sports. But the D2 and D3 schools, a lot of, a lot of their participation is still up in the air. Here in Virginia, though, the Old Dominion Athletic Conference announced prior to Thanksgiving that it had made the decision to return to play in January 2021. A very exciting, very exciting decision for sports fans as well as the student athletes. And that's for all sports. And joining us today to talk about that decision and what we can expect as sports fans here in Virginia is a commissioner of the ODAC, Brad Bankston. Brad has been the commissioner for the ODAC for 23 years. Is that correct? Well, I, used tra I, I lose track of time. You know, it's probably <laughs> been that long, yes. And some of our members probably think far longer than that. <laughs> for, for better or worse, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, Brad, I want to take I want to thank you for taking some time out today to join us. Uh, I know it's a, it's been a very hectic time for you, but an exciting time. Um, and obviously, everybody who's watching this is on Facebook Live. So if you have a question, uh, feel free to put it up on the stream and we'll see if we can get it over to Brad. Um, for those who don't know, though, the ODAC, more so than probably any other conference that features a Virginia school, is really the fabric of Virginia. Fourteen of the member institutions call the Commonwealth home. Uh, how important was it to you and the member institutions to get back to competition? Well, you know, I think it's the most important thing for us is for our student athletes to have some idea of what our plan was. And, and well, that's really where our focus has been from the beginning. It's been about the students. It's been about the student athletes. And you know, we've had an opportunity to get back to campus. Our campus have had a ch chance to acclimatize to the virus as best you can. It's a moving target. I think we all know that anything that anybody has followed the news over the last nine months knows from one day to the next you're going to get a different opinion or perhaps a different direction that people are taking as much as the CDC changing quarantine rules, you know, or masking uh, suggestions or recommendations. So we, we want to focus on the mental health uh, and the well-being of our student athletes. And because our institutions have had the opportunity to get a good idea about what this means and how this works, um, you know, we're in a better place. We think we're in a better place moving forward. When we stopped things in March and started having conversations about uh, resuming activity in the fall, there was a lot of uncertainty about what campus was going to look like. How well was that going to go? Were people going to have the opportunity to get students back on campus and then have to, you know, track back to online only, actually have people leave campus? What we've learned is that it's doable. It's not doable in an easy fashion, but uh, our institutions have the right protocols in place. I think there's a level of confidence and bringing them back in the, in the spring for the spring semester. Uh, you know, obviously the, the virus is in a different place even than it was in the fall, which is worse now from a societal perspective. And that's something that we'll continue to keep an eye on as we move forward. But the confidence level's there and most importantly, testing's there. So the accessibility of testing, 
uh, even knowing that the, that the country needs to be doing more testing and they are doing more testing, those tests are now available to us to be able to implement with the help of the NCA's recommendations, be able to move forward for competition. That's why we feel like we're in a much better place than we were in the fall uh, about being able to put our student athletes in an environment that's safe uh, and safe for the opponents as well. I have about 15 follow-ups to that one answer. I mean, that, that, that was, that was and, and a loaded answer and, and I love it. Holes. Yeah, there's <laughs> 20 right. rabbit holes to jump down. You talked about testing. I mean, we all know testing is expensive. We've been told testing is expensive, particularly on a large scale like this. Is the NCAA supporting the ODAC in any way or, or how is that being implemented? Well, that's interesting because, you know, every division in, in the NCAA has different um, grant programs or fund sharing programs. As you know, obviously the division one program of the basketball sharing is, is in the news right now with the Nike Commission recommending changes in uh, how the NCAA is run and how Division One's run based on revenue. And for us in Division Two, there are grant programs that are provided to our conference. And there's been a lot of latitude uh, that's been given by the NCAA this year because there are not a lot of professional development opportunities and other things that we're able to do with students remotely and or uh, other programming that they're allowing us to be able to funnel some of that money into testing. So. That's some of the uh, help that we're getting. It's not a lot of money by any means. It's not going to cover what our institutions have related to testing. But, you know, when we started this in the, in the fall, I would say a test was $125 for a PCR test. It was going to take between five and seven days for it to return. And the original recommendation, I think, from the NCAA is that you had to test 72 hours before competition. Well, you know, the pricing alone was prohibitive knowing that we didn't even know if we were going to get the test back in time to be able to compete and be able to move forward. So we're in a much better place now with testing. Uh, we've been very fortunate in the state of Virginia through some of the allocations that have gone uh, from the federal government uh, with several testing options that they've distributed some of those tests to our institutions, which are going to help us get moving. I think in the spring, not only for our student athletes, but most, most importantly, our students returning to campus. And then I think the second piece of that is we now have accessible and affordable testing for us to be able to purchase and have in hand to be able to get us through the spring. So when I say affordability, it's much different probably than what a Virginia or Virginia Tech VCU ODU is looking at right now. Uh, but for us, we're looking at those rapid, uh, those rapid antigen tests that we can uh, administer for high risk sports three times a week at a minimum uh, for our student athletes. Are you, are you in discussions or at least kind of talking with other counterparts throughout the state, even at the bigger schools as to, you know, how did you do it? Because we're seeing news right now that it's, as you mentioned, it, the numbers, the numbers show us that it's worse than it was when we first started and even through the summer and games, it's fluid, whether a game is going to happen or not. Sometimes it goes right up to tip and we don't know. How much communication is there between other schools outside of division three in the state uh, to really kind of make sure that you guys get this right? Well, I think we've had a lot of communication with our ATCs that have shared a lot of information between their counterparts at the Division I level. Uh, there's not a lot of difference uh, for us. In some cases, I've had a, some, some ongoing conversations uh, with Robert Lindenberg, the AD at Radford, just because I see you know, Radford's program certainly is a Division I program, and they were not competing in the fall. So we've, we've you know, traded um, information back and forth kind of about what we're doing and kind of how they're moving forward in the Big South, which has been very helpful. And you know, there are not a lot of Division II counterparts to CIAA. We have not communicated with them directly uh, within the state, but uh, I know that those options are there. And I've shared information with another, uh, our Division II colleagues that are in Tennessee and in the North Carolina area. So we've had some open dialogue and really find uh, that many of us will are, are focusing on the NCAA's resocialization document 
it's come from um, the Sports Science Institute at the NCAA, which is really an all division kind of roadmap as to how to get back into uh, resocialization of collegiate sport and playing sports again. Obviously, the Division Ones are following it. They're doing the best they can. There are some Division II schools. There's some Division Three schools right now in different parts of the country that are playing contests. Uh, a lot of schools in Texas are playing basketball right now. We've got schools in the upper Midwest that are playing basketball in Division Three, And they've had a similar issue, right? You know, it's like, when do you make the decision not to play? You've got the team quarantined. You're out for X number of weeks or X number of days. Fortunately, that quarantine rule is changing and evolving. That may help us get back to competition a little faster if we run into that. But, you know, the bugaboo in all this right now is we're trying to start with a sport that's an indoor sport that has a lot of contacts. And, um, you know, you've seen or read different articles related to transmission. Basketball, correct. Yeah, basketball specifically. All right. We do not have ice hockey and we do not formally uh, sponsor wrestling, although we have members that have wrestling. You know, those are those are problem sports when you're dealing with an indoor facility. So, you know, we're looking at all the ways that we can have mitigation in place to be able to play with no spectators in all likelihood, certainly after the governor's announcement yesterday, and then being able to move forward and just get contest in. Do we think this is going to be perfect? By no means would I ever promise this is going to be perfect. And all you have to do is turn the television on or look at a sports app and determine the number of games that have been canceled. I do think it's important to note that of all the games that are being canceled, there are a lot of games being played and a lot of games being played safely. And, um, and that's important to note because we're not doing any of this in a blind fashion about entering in competition without fully weighing uh, the safety of our student athletes and our student body and our campuses as we do it. It has been exciting. And I think that, that that's a really good outlook to take, taking the positive as opposed to the negative is when you look at the, the amount of games that are being played every night, we, we have games that we can watch on, on television and we can interact with either online or, you know, digitally, obviously, there's not a lot of fans going to them. But the people playing those games, the student athletes, you mentioned that uh, I'm sure there were a lot of voices in the room as you guys were going through these plans and brainstorming how this could happen again. How valuable was the student athlete voice uh, from your member institutions and, and what did they bring to the table uh, to make sure that you guys got off safely? Yeah, they're always a part of our conversations and uh, something that we integrally rely on our institutions to kind of bring their voice forward. Well, we've had several conversations with our student athlete advisory committee. And, you know, oftentimes they may have a meeting. I have a staff member that runs that meeting or they're actually participating in some sort of programming. We've really been pointed and focused on their mental health during this and how difficult this is. So we had a lot of discussion with them at the end of the spring semester before we entered into this fall about, you know, how are you doing? You know, how are you taking care of yourself? How are you physically taking care of yourself when you're away? Because everybody at that time had gone remote and gone home. So the hope was that we get back on campus. And I always have been very careful not to provide false hope to them about competition, have been very realistic about my answers. But uh, we usually have a Q&A with them and they can pass that information back on to their students on their own campus about what the plans are from the conference perspective and what we're looking to do. And honestly, um, you know, it, it's been very refreshing to hear how much they're eager to play. At the same time, there have been concerns, you know, how will we travel? You know, what are the restrictions related to travel? Are we scheduling based upon the fact that we have no overnight? So they're very cognizant of what the issues are and certainly don't have their head in the sand about the fact that this is gonna be something easy. They're all gonna to have to participate and follow the protocols on their campus for us to be able to accomplish what we want to do. 
mental health, that's the buzzword. And that is something that we, we focus on here at the Hall of Fame through our, our partnership with Children's Hospital, the King's Daughters and the Hampton Road Sports Commission. And I, I hate to say it's funny, but we hosted an in-person event on sports and mental health with CHKD on March 11th. If that event would have been scheduled for March 12th, it would yeah. not have happened. Now right. we transition that to an online platform, but that has really become top of mind for student athletes. Uh, going into this, was there already a basis of, you know, the ODAC support student athlete mental health and, and putting resources towards it? Or did this kind of help kind of blow that out of proportion? This well, that's a great, uh, it's a great segue into where we've been, right? You know, it, uh, it, it, it became evident. It was the buzzword afterwards, mental health. You know, we've got to worry about these kids' mental health. I got to worry about my own mental health in this. Mm -hmm. And I say that with a, a little bit of jest, but at the same time, we all do, because this has been such a, you know, seismic shift as to how we've operated and what we've done in our world i get the question all the time how are you doing you know this has got to be very difficult for you i bet your head's spinning in 100 different directions well so is everybody else right you know but what's been frustrating for us is that we haven't been able to launch you know it's like having the ship at the at the launch pad and always having something that steps in the way and it's always the same problem right it's just you try to find a different way to solve it and you can't we were engaged in some mental health programming with our student athletes before this started. And a lot of it was originated actually with uh, a young lady uh, who was serving as the chair of the national SAC, the division three SAC, Maddie Burns at Randolph-Macon. And if you know Jeff Burns, who's the athletic director at, uh, at Randolph-Macon, Jeff, she, he's, she is one of Jeff's twin daughters and was uh, very open and honest about some of her mental health struggles that she had had early on in college. And it promoted this at the division three level. And as a result of that, uh, really spearheaded a, a national campaign about uh, the mental health and focusing directly on division three, but at the same time also reaching out to the division one and two athletes and those national SACs about creating some mechanism for people to be aware if it's annually where the SAC actually talks to the entire student athlete body on campus and makes them aware of the resources that they have and that the stigma, it was called break the stigma, I think is what they were really talking about in their video plan, being able to break the stigma of saying, hey, I, it's okay to ask for help. And uh, we know you're hurting. And then also talking about interventional type opportunities for student athletes on their campuses to be able to make those adjustments to their, um, to their plans moving forward. So we were, we were there. I'm not so sure we've done an effective job in the midst of all of this to keep those you know, balls in the air as much as we can. Uh, I hope to resume that. And we're actually embarking on some leadership programming with our students uh, beginning after January. So we're gonna resume those, uh, those, those group meetings and have an opportunity for them to grow a little bit even outside of athletics uh, competition. I think those are so important because there, there is a difference. Um, and a lot of people don't know there is a difference between mental health and well-being and mental performance, particularly when it comes to student athletes. So that's a very important thing you guys are doing. And, and we're happy to, to see that continue, um, you know, without fans, because I'm assuming that obviously yesterday with the announcement, there's definitely not going to be fans. Uh, what's the ODAC? What are their member institutions going to do to kind of give fans that digital engagement, the opportunity to uh, at least be able to feel like they're a part of it during the upcoming seasons? Sure. Thanks for thanks for bringing that up. And again, kudos to what you guys are doing with mental health. I think it's wonderful. And I think the programming and education that you've really taken uh, on your shoulders as a uh, director of the sports hall has been fantastic. I've been following it from afar and and we certainly hope that we can participate that in the in, in that in the future. Um, 
we will provide a very robust streaming experience and have done that for all of our contests many years before this. So I feel like we were at the forefront from a division three perspective. There were a couple of leagues, gosh, as many as seven, eight years ago that had embarked on this streaming, uh, you know, adventure that we're on. And now it just seems so easy to do. Uh, we have institutions that are more complex than others, perhaps. But and you and I both know with a good internet connection and a camera and actually somebody doing uh, uh, PA or somebody doing some sort of commentary or without, you know, you at home can actually access those games. So mm -hmm. we've built We're a doing network. With a, with a moderate yeah. internet connection. Exactly. Yeah. Even, yeah. And, and, and you never know. Mine may go out at any point in time. We've got... <laughs> We've got hamsters on the wheel here trying to keep this. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's um, for for us, we've led in that world. And part mm -hmm. of that is my associate commissioner, J.J. Nekoloff, who has just taken technology and run with it for us. It may not look like it all the time, but when we do our own stream uh, from the conference office, it's a very high quality product. We may do a three or a four camera shoot. You know, we've got graphics associated with it. And all of our schools have grown in that way. So there are a lot of really easy platforms now that, you know, have got a production truck on your, uh, on your Apple computer or your, your, your PC and you're running it and uh, you're filtering these cameras in. And, and that's our plan. I mean, that's where we want to go. Does that change in the spring? Does that change in March and April? Uh, I think right now the governor's suggestion was two, two people per participant outdoors and 25 indoors. I think the restriction to 25 indoors certainly presents us an uh, opportunity for us to, to not have anybody inside uh, with basketball in January. But as things change, and, and as we know, I think his announcement was through January 31st, that may change for us outdoors as well. And we hope that it will. We want to be able to provide people that opportunity. Part of competition for us outside of the student athletes is inviting people to our campuses. We all miss that, right? I mean, that's one of the coolest things about going to a college game is going to see a college campus and taking part of being, remembering what it was like maybe to be 20, you know, and, uh, and I get a chance to do that a lot. But uh, unfortunately, over the last nine months, I've not had a chance to do it as much as I'd like. Well, and that's, uh, that brings up a, a really interesting part of the announcement that, uh, that I thought was exciting is that this isn't just for winter and spring sports. This is all sports. <laughs> How important was it to the, uh, to the conference and to yourself to make sure that all of these sports had a chance to return to play? Well, a, a tremendously important because it's about giving all the student athletes an opportunity to compete. And, and ultimately for us, you know, the NCAA has done something uh, unprecedented. We're, we're in unprecedented times. We hear that all the time, right? Um, they've given back years of competition, seasons of participation for Division Three across the board this year. So, you know, there was a limit where if you played over 50%, you would, you would use a year. They've, they've taken that and provided a blanket waiver for it. We were intending to move forward with fall all along. Um, as things have evolved and as things have changed, some of those schedules have morphed a little bit. And I think a lot of the perspective of the coaches and the student athletes have changed too. From at the beginning of the fall, we want a complete season in the spring to we've practiced, we've competed against each other and how whatever form some of them have done on their own campus to we want an opportunity to participate. That may mean, as you said, that may be a senior, right? That's, that's gonna graduate in May, that has the last chance to play soccer. We thought that was important. We thought that was an important opportunity for them. We think we can do it. Um, I, would, I chuckled when you were talking about you're, you're going to bring the fall into the spring. A lot of people probably think we're a little crazy to do it. Um, and and I, I would think there's a little bit of that in there too. Uh, but it's about um, – 
it's about the the attention to the all of the student athletes of providing that opportunity that our people are committed to and um, you know we certainly hope that we can implement that in the spring in a way that works and right now our overlapping schedules given the fact that we spread things out look pretty good look very manageable for our people and um, if we're able to keep things where they are I think we're going to be able to do it and, and not do it in a way that's too too taxing on staff it's going to be tough and uh, we're going to have to make some adjustments but I think we'll be able to get it done. I think you brought up a very interesting point in your answer there too, that, you know, these are D3 athletes. And while these are very good athletes, the professional opportunities aren't there in the same breath as you would say with a D1 athlete. So for many people, for many of the, the upperclassmen, this might be their last, this, their last chance to compete. So we're definitely happy to see that they're going to be getting back out on the, uh, on the fields, the courts. But for those athletes that don't play, uh, or that choose to opt out. Is there a scenario where they're able to maintain that eligibility? I think you may have answered that, but I just want to make sure that there's some clarity there. It is. So, you know, Division Three works much differently than Division One does, and I'm not totally familiar with Division Two and their clock, but Division One, there's a clock once you start. You have to complete four years in five, in, uh, four, four years of a sport in five years. Mm -hmm. Division Three, it's an indefinite clock. You can, it's all about counting full-time semesters. So, despite the fact you may be going to class and in one semester you may take nine hours as a, and not be a full-time student and not participate. You're not allowed to participate unless you're full-time on your campus and compete unless you're taking 12 hours. But if you're under that, you're not using your time. You know, you're attending school in whatever way you make that work. And what the NCAA has done is basically given them semesters back and years back. Now, that's not a scholarship, right? In many cases, that's the opportunity to come back and return to play and for a lot of these students, you know, you've got to bear, bear in mind the financial impact that's involved in that. So I know that everybody will be weighing their decisions different ways. It must be, it's probably easier for a fall student athlete to return for that last year, take four and a half years to graduate, as it might be for a baseball student athlete to do that. But the baseball student athlete also has the opportunity in many cases to apply to graduate school, to continue their education, to be able to play their, their years out and or take the fall off if they wanna work or go do an internship or proactively do that on their own, return for that half a semester to make it four and a half years in the spring and play with the baseball team in the spring or the softball team or whatever they choose to do. Is the NCAA, is the NCAA D3, are they holding uh, national championships for these sports or is this specific to ODAC competitions? Now, right now, the uh, the only thing is not being held is the, are the fall championships. Okay. So. There'll be no fall football, soccer, field hockey, volleyball, cross country championships. There will be, as of this time, winter championships, which for us would involve basketball and swimming and for all the spring championships at this point in time. They've reduced the fields a little bit. Their uh, recommendations on hosting is gonna be very unique to something that we've never done in division three before, but uh, they intend to do it. We're keeping track of those leagues that are saying they're not participating in the winter right now. Whether that number falls below 60% will be that threshold that the NCAA determines whether they're going to move forward with a winter championship or not. If they move, we may adjust our schedule to be able to have a little more flex to be able to play later in basketball if we need to. We may start at the same time and extend it. it that would add a lot of flexibility for us because right now we're bookended with when they need an, a champion from us, which is like March the 6th, to be able to advance into the NCAA championship. We're slated to host the women's championship at Roanoke College this year. So that'll be a very unique um, opportunity as well, because they're talking about bringing eight teams in 
They're going to bubble the environment as much as they can. You know, they're going to take that idea of what they intend to do with the Division One championships. I think the men, possibly the women, with having them at one location, um, doing that in a smaller fashion at the Division Two and Three level, it's not realistic for us to do that. You know, across the board, we're so different. But I think they're moving in that direction. And you know, I'll be honest, I was I was fascinated with the Division One conversation and how they may do that. I was talking with a guy who is a former member of the NCAA staff yesterday, and. I said to him, you know, gosh, I'd love to be a part of that group planning that because it just blows my mind from an event standpoint, how you do it. And, you know, he brought up some really good points and he's not on the inside at all and doesn't know anything about what's going on now. But, you know, that's the suggestion that they were going to be in Indianapolis for the division one men's championship, San Antonio for the women. You know, they have massive um, convention centers there that they would be able to take those ballrooms and play games in a similar fashion, the way the NBA did. I was just said, about to say the NBA. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, I, I said, gosh, I hadn't I thought about it, but I hadn't really thought about it. And, and in Indy, all of those hotels are connected by a walk. Yeah. You don't even have to go outside. If you've been there and gone there for a convention, literally, you can get all the way to Lucas Oil through almost going inside the whole way of getting there. You know, so that that concept is very interesting. I have to think they're thinking about that. And that will be fascinating if they're able to pull it off. And for the NCAA's health and well-being moving forward financially, uh, it's very important that they play those games. And I know that that's what they're trying to do. And 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 I know that they're also trying to do it in a safe fashion as as, as much as they can for for all the student athletes. The pandemic has definitely bred creativity. I mean, trying to find unique ways to, to get these events off, even without fans, um, you know, TV is a big part of it. Just be, giving something to the spectator as they are spectator sports has been very important. Um, in the event of postponement, though, in, in conference play, you know, one of the big stories we heard this week was the Ohio State Big Ten. You know, they, they weren't able to get to that game, that game six. And then they said, well, no, we're going to change that because they are our best team. Is there some flexibility in the calendar? Do you guys have benchmarks in place or did you just leave the benchmarks alone to, to not get into that situation like the Big Ten did? Well, you know, they're a little bit different game, as you know. Uh, <laughs> yes. They're worried about making sure that Ohio State makes the playoffs, I would imagine, <laughs> is probably first and foremost, because there's a lot of uh, greenbacks that are, uh, that, are on the, that are on the line for that, right? So for us, when this started in March, we all became reactionary, right? It was like, holy smoke, are we going to be able to keep playing? And if we are going to keep playing after a break, what does this look like? And we immediately dove into what constituted a season, how many games people needed to complete to, to kind of re, reorient ourselves and knowing what our rules are. And um, we, have th we have plans in place. We have plans in place for the number of teams that need to compete to have a conference championship. We have plans in place to the number of games that you need to complete within that season to be able to advance to the championship. And, you know, well, I think the biggest challenge we're going to have, well, getting the games moving and, and having the testing in, in place on our campuses and getting that cadence and flow moving is probably the biggest challenge. But what happens when we miss a game because of COVID? You know, is it just gone? And, and in all likelihood, it probably is as long as we don't have time to make them up. And there's a, there has to be an end, you know? And then how many games does somebody miss for you to be able to continue? So that's gonna be, I think, the biggest challenge that we have about dealing with once we start competing, who can compete on what day, how many games do they miss, whether you're able to make those up. And then you throw in the middle of that weather, 
which, you know, this will be the winter, and I don't want to say this, but I'll say it anyway, where there's four blizzards in uh, March and, you know, in, in, the, in February and the beginning of March. You just uh, spoke it out of existence. It's I know, I did. I hope I did. I hope I did. Yeah, <laughs> I, I haven't read the Farmer's Almanac, but I'm hoping that uh, it's not, not this I uh, Probably not. So, you know, in doing that, you've got weather on top of it. So if it's not a COVID miss, it's a weather miss. So our people have said, well, if it's a weather miss, let's reschedule it like we normally would. If it's a COVID miss, chances are we're not going to miss that game. We're going to miss another game. We may miss another game. And then those games either are made up at the end or they're just lost. And um, I think that's what we're finding in Division One basketball right now. You know, we're watching that go along. One of the things I thought that was really interesting, and I haven't gone back to look at it, and I, sh I should, and I should have known this before opening my mouth and saying it, is how many of those games in the fall sports for the ACC, for example, were actually missed? You know, how many games did uh, Virginia women's soccer miss or you know, North Carolina's men's soccer team, how many games did they miss? And I don't know that because um, I'm sure they missed some. And I know that they dealt with that along the way of people not being able to play in the tournament and moving teams around at the end. So, you know, it, it'll be good for us to kind of go back and reference that and see what that looks like uh, long-term. And I'm hoping that we're not dealing with this in the fall, but I still think there's an outside chance that we could, we could be testing in the fall. We could have some issues where we may have to you know, pull a, uh, put a pause on what we're doing. And if that's the case, then we have the pieces in place, I think, to make the right decisions. And it's, you know, you hate to have something like this, bring things to the light that you need to have done. But uh, there are several things that have come to light that we, we realized that we were not, um, I guess, thinking it far enough ahead, perhaps, that we needed to kind of uh, go back, go, go backtrack on and kind of create some policy, which has been, it's been healthy for us to have those discussions in the middle of all this. As it pertains just to the spring semester and, and the restart, what would you consider a success? Oh, man, uh, I, I think the idea that we bring students back to campus, that we start practicing in regular form again and resume classes on campus, you know, a lot of this is going to depend on whether institutions return in person. You know, their intent is that they return in person. I'm not insinuating they're not, but a lot can change between now and the middle of January, which we're well aware hopefully for the positive and not for the negative. But if there's a, you know, a governor's order or something like that that prevents them from returning in person until later, we're going to have to make adjustments uh, to, our, to our schedule. To me, a success is we're able to engage all of our sports in some level of competition in the spring. And I'm hoping that that means a more robust opportunity for our spring sports that were, you know, just totally, you know, devastated last year about not being able to continue their competition and also being able to reach out to those that we haven't been able to serve this year in the fall and the winter and having some, some, some semblance of competition. So, you know, that's a success in my mind. I'm not foolish enough to think that it has to be perfect, that we have to play every game, because if I was, I, I, you know, this would be the wrong time to be in this job, that's for sure. Well, we uh, will definitely be following from here. Obviously there's 14, as I mentioned, 14 of the member institutions of Virginia schools. So there will be sports fans following it all across Virginia. Uh, Brad, always great catching up with you. And uh, thank you for being very open about this discussion and yeah. uh, great information. So we're looking forward to you guys returning to play in January. Communication is the most important of all of this stuff. And I, I actually thank you for being able to give me an opportunity to present that to the group. And um, if anybody has any questions, I'd certainly welcome them to send them to me. I'd be happy to answer.
Well, I'm sure that they will, and, and we're happy to, to offer that platform as well. Um, if you want to stay up to date with everything going on with the ODAC, go to their website, odaconline.com. You can also follow them on Twitter, at ODAC Athletics, all one word. Uh, I would like to thank everybody here at the Hall of Fame who helps us put this on, our partners, City of Virginia Beach, Priority Automotive, Davcon Inc., Optima Health, ESPN Radio, and the Hampton Road Sports Commission. Be sure to follow us on all of our platforms as well, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at VA Sports HOF. Uh, once again, I am Will Driscoll. Uh, we will be back on Tuesday with a recruiting discussion. And then after that, we may take a pause for the rest of the year. But until then, hope everybody continues to have a safe and healthy holiday season. And just please do your part. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll speak to you soon.